Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for New Books in Japanese Studies, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Gita Mariana Hansen and Fabio Gigi, the editors of The Work of Gender, Service, Performance, and Fantasy in Contemporary Japan. This is an edited volume out from Nias Press in 2022, and it gathers together ethnographic research organized around a cluster of key themes, including affective labor and the commodified performance of gender in contemporary Japan. Refreshingly, the chapters consist exclusively of the work of early career scholars, and that's all tied together with an introductory chapter and an epilogue by the editors, uh, respectively. The authors of the chapters are attentive to the spatial and temporal boundaries of gender performance and the interactions between fantasy, play, performance, and identity in the marketplace of gendered service. All right, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's lovely to uh, finally get us all here together. We had some scheduling difficulties earlier in the year, uh, but it's it's great to have the two of you here. Uh, and so I want to jump right in uh, and get the two of you to talk about uh, how you became interested in and, and came to co-edit and put together this project uh, that became the book, The Work of Gender, Service, Performance, and Fantasy in Contemporary Japan. Well, um, first of all, thank you so much, Nathan, for having us. Uh, it, it's really um, an honor to to be have been invited and of course we're really happy that you're interested in this book which came about in a little bit unusual way perhaps because it was not planned um, at all uh, in fact I'm working in uh, more literary studies than uh, anthropology or ethnography and I've been invited by the Sasakawa UK Sas- Sasakawa um, Foundation to comment on UK PhD um, studies that was uh, looking at Japan. And given my background uh, with gender, I had been assigned to a group that was working on gender. And as I listened to all these fascinating uh, projects that was going on and that I didn't know anything about being up in the north, (laughs) um, it suddenly hit me that there was a group of of, uh, young scholars who were working I hadn't really defined yet how they connected, but to me, they connected very strongly. And not only that, I just found the different um, topics and fields so fascinating. And I was really, as a literary scholar, I was really fascinated by how they had gained access. So as it turns out, some of these students was actually Fabio's <laughs> students, and uh, we connected that way. Uh, and then we just really let um, the different studies speak for themselves, and we got some more people on board. Some people had to drop out. And in the end, we, we just found that what connected these studies um, in this time and space was really service, performance, and fantasy. Um, so I don't know if you want to add something to that, Fabio. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, it, we it sort of it emerged organically from the ethnographic material. Um, uh, there were several workshops, um, also during supervision. Um, there is really the, the focus on gender became much more specific, specifically focused on the idea of commodified experiences of the ways in which gender is presented and has to be presented in different uh, social contexts. And that sort of, once we realized that, it became much easier to sort of create the framework within which all the chapters would work. So having said that, they're all very individual and different. 
Um, and they all speak to the literature in a slightly different way, which is precisely what makes it interesting as an intellectual project. And I also think it, it made, at least me, but I also think you, Fabio, it made, it made us look back at how we had um, experienced gender in, in Japan throughout the years of us working with Japan. And uh, as that, I don't know if it's an introduction or a, for, a foreword that I, I wrote about my own experiences having visited a, a, um, a, a, a what's it called? A bar in in the 90s and um, later on um, made cafe in the 2000s and finally the uh, bottler cafe uh, and and I could see my own growth in in the field really even though this is not my field at all and and I'm more in literature I could really see how I developed myself as a scholar too so in that way this book is very personal <laughs> travel for me um, maybe particularly because I am more situated in, in literary studies so I learned a lot <laughs> to be fair <laughs> both from Fabio and from all these uh, scholars we have. It, I think it, re it really it was a journey and I think we decided to bracket it with our own personal experiences precisely to sort of to, to, to put an emphasis on also how things ha had changed um, and the ways in which you always are part of performing gender, um, whether you're conscious of it or not. Uh, and this is always part um, of your experience of Japan as well. So it, it also for me was a trip down memory lane, you know, as you sort of enter middle age, you sort, sort of start to think back and, and what was it like? Um, I, I first went to Japan when I was 16 as a high school exchange student and uh, sort of many things the, the the volume in essence allowed me to to reflect on many of these experiences and sort of to write about them for the first time uh and and i realized well we've been thinking about these things for the whole time in essence yeah and i think this is uh this conversation has highlighted a couple of the really um you know unusual uh in a good way uh things about the volume and one uh is the way that uh, as you said your two contributions uh written contributions um bracket the work of these younger scholars uh the introductory chapter and then the epilogue um, and then the other is that it does focus on the work of uh, early career scholars um and uh that's something that uh, not a lot of books are doing and so I actually I found this to be very refreshing, very interesting, um, and I also learned a great deal from it. Um, and so you, you've set this up, up in, in those uh, contributions of yours uh, as a book, not just about the sort of commodified performance of gender in late capitalist contemporary Japan, but also um, as in many ways, a, an exploration of affective labor. Uh, so I wanted to sort of dig into that just a little bit and think about um, affective labor and emotional labor. Uh, how are they similar, overlapping, different, um, and the question of uh, how the performative uh, labor of gender in contemporary Japan, how that might differ from um, the performance or the commodification of gender in previous eras. You've already talked about sort of that personal experience that we've all had interacting with Japan over many years, and I think that comes out as well. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that? I can start this off um, with that question. Thank you very much. So. I think what really what we were trying to do, uh, we're we're living in in a, in a period of time where where gender is very intensely discussed and where we sort of moving away from a biological essentialistic understanding of what gender is to a much more constructed 
um, understanding. And this is, it's really a very important for the book. But I think there's also, there's sort of a danger to go to a psychic essentialism on the other hand, saying, well, it, it's only an inner experience. And while both of these poles, of course, exist as sociologists or literary scholars or as anthropologists of Japan, what interests us is the social sphere. So what is in between? What is the part that is conflicted, that is negotiated, that is presented? And here, uh, questions of emotional and affective labor come in. Now, if emotional labor is the old, uh, is, is, I mean, they're, they're parallel terms, but they point to slightly different things. Emotional labor is much more um, concrete, perhaps much more useful ethnographically speaking, uh, coined by Arlie Hochschild, um, defined as, you know, the effort of creating a certain state of mind in somebody else. So this is sort of the core um, idea of customer service uh, that she analyzed for her books on stewardesses. I think it's very uh, important uh, for a Japanese context as well. Effective labor points more to the larger structural questions of what, you know, how labor has changed uh, in the 20th and the 21st century. And uh, Antonio Hart and Negri um, elaborate on that a little bit. Um, and affect theory, of course, is a whole different beast um, that sort of um, tries to think about what happens before we consciously feel the emotion. And so the, the work that the scholars, the junior scholars presented, uh, very much engaged with all of these dimensions. And this is where uh, we thought it's, it, it would be a good idea to bring this together, because when while teaching, I often encounter questions like that. What is the difference between effective labor? What is the emotional labor? How can we make these um, concepts work uh, in the field. And of course, the important recognition is also that we talk about feminized labor, we talk about labor that is not really acknowledged. So it's outside of the official definition um, of labor and therefore uh, questions of exploitations uh, also become relevant. Questions of uh, commodification, how, what is paid for, what is exchanged actually, what is the transa transaction that happens? Uh, in the field. Um, and so, because each chapter addresses this question in a slightly different way, uh, it sort of brings in a kaleidoscopic idea of what this uh, work of gender can be. Yeah, I found that very useful to think about um, gender in the sort of marketplace, to, uh, you know, as something that is being commodified, that is sometimes being uh, actually paid for, you know, the sort of performant, performative aspects of it, and sometimes are not. And the sort of fine distinctions that are being made between uh, different types of compensated and uncompensated labor. Um, and so I, I guess it was one of the things that uh, really fascinated me about the, the book overall was that I didn't really expect it to be quite as much a book about labor. Um, I was thinking it was going to be more a book about gender, but it's really very much a book about both and about about how they're inextricable from each other. Um, you have another key. What, what yes, I also find very interesting uh, about um, all the chapters, and one thing we hadn't really thought about in the beginning, is that in this exchange of labor, the one paying <laughs> is usually also expected to uh, perform gender in a certain way for, for this transaction to work. So there is, in a way, labor on both sides, as it were, yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the other the other question I wanted to ask you, sort of in the in the sort of setup here before we jump into a couple of the chapters, um, is about a concept uh, that you lay out, which is bounded authenticity. Um, can you tell us what that means and how does that relate to these things we've been talking about, performance, authenticity, um, and also this idea of the sequestration of experience in time and space? Yes, that I thought that was is a wonderful term coined by Elizabeth Bernstein in her book, uh, 2007, I think, temporarily yours about uh, middle class sex work. And the, 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 the problem that she addresses is exactly that. So we tend to believe that if you pay for a service, if you pay for sex, especially, then the experience must be therefore inauthentic. It is not real. But of course, what she points out is that actually, emotionally and physically, the encounter is real. And what you feel is also real. So how do we make a distinction between that and our relationships in our other lives, which also may be dominate, dominated by a kind of exchange um, of gifts or of money and so on and so forth. So she suggests that we need to think of it as a temporal sequestration. There is a distinction. Once you pay for the service, you then enter sort of a time frame in which what you receive, the relationship that you create is actually authentic, but it has a limit. And once it ends, the transaction, so to speak, cuts off that particular relationship. So it doesn't mean that what you feel or experience is not therefore real. And I think this is a very important um, aspect of this discourse of authenticity, which we also now have to, of course, deal with uh, when talking about uh, gender, you know, the idea that you have to live your own truth, that you always have to be yourself, that you always have to express what you are, which is a very strong imperative uh, that sort of is, is also very Eurocentric. And that I find you find um, much less important in a Japanese context, where there is a bigger distance between the performance that you can give and your actual inner self that may not necessarily perform what you do uh, sincerely. And it's not a requirement for that. So authenticity and sincerity do not, not necessarily match onto each other. Yeah, I think that's a, one of the really interesting uh, things that gets brought out here is the, the effects of the um, elevated consciousness of performance uh, on the way that this this whole uh, uh, story, these set of stories play out. Um, so before we jump into just a couple of the chapters, because we're not going to be able to cover the whole book, um, I did want to ask if there's anything uh, that we should discuss in terms of uh, a sort of overview of the basic themes or findings of these five ethnographies before we focus down on a few of them. Is there anything else or should we just jump right in? Maybe we can jump in, we can come back to that. Uh, yeah. Great. Yeah, let's do that then. So we're going to jump in with uh, chapter three, uh, which is Marta Fanasca's chapter about uh, her ethnography, uh, cross-dressed ethnography in a dancehall escort company. Uh, and so she was employed as, uh, as she says, a cross-dresser escort uh, in 2015 and 2016 uh, in the area around Akihabara, uh, Tokyo's sort of famous pop culture playground. Um, the... She describes the agency's clientele, uh, the other escorts, uh, the gender performance that both sides are sort of engaged in, and then her own creation of a male alter ego, uh, who she names Andre. 
uh, place, and this gets back to this question of the sequestration of experience, is really important, I think, to this story um, uh, of, as embodiment. So maybe we could talk about um, this chapter starting with the observation that she makes that in Akihabara, switching gender identity is a form of play rather than an act of subversion. So that's kind of what I want, where I want to start. Um, and then think about the ways in which the agency's employees and customers perform a kind of idealized version of heteronormative gender binaries, even in this fantasy world where you're doing some other kind of gender performance. Um, and also just to mention that this does resonate with some of the themes in chapter two, uh, which is about working in a gay bar in Shinjuku as well. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think this actually takes us back to what we just spoke about um, because it's easy at, on a first level to see this as a completely rejection of the heteronormative way of living and society as a whole. But be, but because of this idea of the heightened um, understanding of the self as performative and the the gender as a performance in general. For many Japanese and, and for many um, expressions of gender, it's very clear in Japan that we don't have to be the same all the time. So for people um, buying an experience with a male escort, uh, sorry, with a cross-dressing um, male escort, that doesn't necessarily mean that this defines their entire uh, self. So they can go for a while and experience this. And, and I think um, Mata really uh, explains this well and, and through her own experience as being a cross-dresser. Um, so it, it, yeah, it, it can easily be seen as a way to try and break down existing um, gender rules as it were in society, but in fact, to some degree does the exact opposite. Uh, just within a new set of rules. <clears throat> I think yes, that that's 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 a very good way of putting it. I think I like this opposition between play and subversion, um, which really plays out um, in her chapter uh, very well. But of course, play has this anarchic aspect to it. But here, that that's why the the bounded authenticity is important because it contains this play space. So within it, you you are free to experiment. But uh, as Gita said, there is it doesn't influence who you are in life otherwise. So there's a sequestration of experience. You can be some other person in this particular frame, but it doesn't then mean it doesn't have any direct influence on your identity in every life, in everyday life otherwise. Yeah, for me, um, as a, a, a sort of former theater kid, if you will, uh, this was an experience that I could in that sense relate to, right? This feeling of um, you have this carnivalesque moment where you're allowed to play, and yet it doesn't really affect life beyond the stage, right? You do things on stage that are part of playing a role, and then that ends, and if you're lucky, you get a little bit of applause, and then you go, go about your life, and maybe you've gained some empathy for, um, you know, thinking about the world in a different way, for experiencing it in a different way, but fundamentally, it, it, it isn't challenging uh, the the sort of, in this case, in the sort of, uh, in, in Marta's case, this heteronormative world of, of gender performance um, and in the theater world, you know, whatever it is that your that your everyday life is. Um, and so I was relating it in, you know, in that sense to my own experience. I don't know if that's fair or not. Well, that's exactly what I was doing when I uh, revisited my uh, trip to the hostess uh, club and 
and uh, the Maid Cafe and the Butler Cafe, uh, different stages, because I realized that I had failed. I had failed at taking part in this performance. I had failed at understanding that my role was almost just as important as those I was buying the service from. In fact, back then, I didn't even know what kind of service it was, it, it was I was buying. But this is... Um, yeah, so so this is, is just really important. And I think you see this in <clears throat> so many aspects of Japanese life. We, we've just collected uh, a few, and some of them may seem very uh, weird Japan to the Western viewer. And this is something we actually really want to downplay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think generally in Japan, there are many situations where you can buy an experience for a temporal amount of time but you yourself also have to take part and understand your role in, in this um yeah. yeah i was also reminded that i mean this is not just a thing that we do of course with gender although you know having these case studies that are ethnographic and that are related to gender um sort of make it very clear and i think it's a it's a really powerful book for that reason but i was also reminded uh recently uh somewhere in tokyo they opened up um something that they're calling uh or something like that and you go uh so it's you know the cafe that your friend runs and you go and there are paid actors who are the employees there who act as if they're your friend um and so they say oh hey how you doing instead of welcome to our cafe there's no sense of formality and it's like oh it's been you know where what, where have you been what have you been doing are you going to have the regular and it's this you're purchasing a sense of intimacy and and get as you said i mean there's a requirement for both sides to participate in this fantasy. Um, and, and also, it doesn't change anything about the life outside of fantasy. It doesn't say anything about who you are or what your identity might be in some larger sense. It just says you're having a moment of play and performance. Yeah. yeah, but what is so wonderful about that, if, if we were to compare um, a typical European setting, is that you can embrace this as authentic. You can actually feel you have friends rather than being alone, or, or you can feel you have someone who's interested in you um, romantically, and you can create this feeling for yourself. So there's a lot of control, I think, um, in, in this that is hard to see in, in many other spaces. <clears throat> um, so if it's okay, I want to I want to move on to the the next chapter here, uh, which takes us in, a, in in somewhat of a different direction. Um, uh, and this is about uh, authenticity and sex work in a delivery health shop. So we're going to have to talk about what uh, delivery health is in just a moment. Um, this is Nicola Phillips' chapter, uh, and Nicola interviewed women working in uh, a uh, a delivery health, which advertises itself as the sort of lowest tier of the sex industry. Um, the uh, the place is called Deadball, and for those listeners who aren't listeners who aren't familiar, uh, let's get this out of the way. What is Dediheru? Uh, how do they fit into the legal sex trade in Japan? Uh, and then we'll get on to talking a little bit more about the chapter. So uh, I think most typically delivery health job is translated simply as call girl. So, so it, it's a place where sex is being sold, but not in the premises. So they don't have a location on site. Uh, and the one offering the sex uh, will go to the client's choice of location, typically perhaps a, a love hotel. Um, so this particular uh, shop that she's looked at 
is a little bit unusual, I think, in that it sells women who are what is termed buzu. And we discussed this a lot, actually, during the editing, because buzu usually means ugly. But these women are not necessarily ugly. They just don't fit into the category typically associated with um, women who sell sex. So they are not necessarily young. They are not necessarily skinny. Um, and not necessarily particularly sexy. Um, so, but the clients at this shop seem to be interested in the ordinary woman, the woman they could meet in the supermarket. Um, and also one thing she finds uh, throughout her study is that it's very important they don't come across as professional uh, sex workers. So they have to seem a little uh, unexperienced, uh, even though obviously with time, <laughs> surely they become experienced. And again, this is uh, the sale of something um, that then becomes probably more authentic for for the buyer. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I neglected to mention the full, I mean, the, the, the title, I just read the subtitle, but the title of the chapter is really all about that. It's professional amateurs, and it's about this uh, purchasing of that intimacy with somebody who you might actually in some other circumstance have been intimate with uh somebody real in that sense and i think that's a sort of fascinating uh aspect of this the, the other one that i wanted to make sure we talked about uh, is the very gendered dynamic of yashi of healing um, that's sort of understood to be a part of the business um, and and how that relates back to this idea we've talked about of bounded authenticity I, yes, I, shall I uh, start us off with that? I think this is this is really very important. And the idea that you just mentioned that there are amateurs uh, that, you know, do this sort of in their spare time, which also allows them to disidentify from sex work to a certain degree. And of course, um, penile vaginal penetration is legally forbidden. So it's anything short of that. Although, as Skita said, if, if you're off site, it's very hard to control what's uh, actually um, happening. Um, but I think the idea of, of Iyashi comes in precisely because it's not, you're not part of this uh, super specialized, um, highly sexualized performance by young, attractive girl that you would never dare to even talk to in everyday life. But for the customers, it's very much a sort of, uh, yes, a, a, a woman next door type experience. And therefore, the healing comes from this coziness. It doesn't come from the technical speciality of the service, but of the sense of warmth, the sense of bonding. You may be in a similar age group, you may have similar experiences. And often uh, the women also reveal parts of their personal lives, whether they have children, for example, or, or if, if the customer has difficulties um, at home, uh, they may want to talk about that. Uh, so there's, there's a different kind of sharing that's also happening. And it is this that is, the healing element of it it's not necessarily that that um you, you know that you have sex alone it's the whole context and again it is bounded and very clearly demarcated by the financial transaction at the end yeah um and so this is a uh, as we've said this is these are transactions that take place uh, offsite in these private spaces uh, and when you leave that private space at the end of the transaction that's kind of the end. Um, and this is actually why I wanted to, to pick to, this is why I chose the last uh, chapter here to talk about, because it takes us in an entirely different direction um, and shows interesting ways in which these 
same dynamics of gender performance uh, and the sort of exchange of services and commodification are actually playing out in entirely other spaces um, and even when it's related to gender uh, in very different contexts. Uh, so this is R.J. Simpkins' chapter called Intimacies of Exposure, Public Space, Gendered Performance, uh, excuse me, Gendered Presence and Performance at a Tokyo train station. Um, and the uh, chapter looks at the gendered ways that male and female street performers uh, at a station in Tokyo called Koenji Station construct um, authenticity uh, and intimacy and how they balance uh, their exposure uh, in a sort of uh, both physical and sort of emotional sense um, and charm to draw in audiences and create a sense of community uh, or at least sort of hospitality and welcoming uh, with their audiences. Simpkins shows that while, and, and I want to quote here, male performers felt able to use the station to be more themselves, being authentic, being authentic is not a choice that women necessarily felt able to make. So can you, so let's talk about why that is um, and what that means for women who are engaged in uh, the performative affective labor of gender um, and how that differs from men and what that means beyond the world of Tokyo street musicians. Well, I think th this is, uh, it's a wonderful chapter um, because Rob, uh, the author was actually playing as a street musician himself. And that's how he entered the field. And he's been there for quite a long time. And, and there's a wonderful uh, ethnography, uh, very detailed. But towards the end, he realized, well, I'm only talking to men. Uh, I, I know a few a female performers, but it seems to be a very different experience for them. And so he started to focus in a little bit more on these differences. And uh, one of the, the things that he really uh, found was that it's all about it's it's about space making. So it's a public space. You're exposed to the gaze of the passerby, but you have as a as a musician or performer, you have to create. You have to take this public space and turn it into something else, like a concert venue or a venue for self-expression. And this, of course, takes on a very strong gender dimension. So men uh, felt very much uh, at ease, you know, especially sort of the more rock type musicians who would just start to play there would be a good vibration and people would sort of assemble but uh women felt women female performance felt very much exposed in a very different way now you have to imagine during commuter uh, rush hour it's uh, it's mostly men it's a salary uh men who come back from work uh, often in a state of inebriation and there would be a lot of sexual harassment. There would be a lot of unwanted attention or rather boundary breaking attention. So people would come, they would listen to a song and then they would try to chat you up or, or, or get close or, or, or it break the, the, the sort of the boundaries that you have created. And so there was a much greater sense of vulnerability. And what he sort of concluded from that is really that public space is also to a strong degree male coded. It's the male gaze that defines what is happening. So if you expose yourself to that, you have to be aware of, 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 the, of the gendered dynamics of the space. And so his artists sort of chose a very different and very creative strategy. Uh, Reina, for example, performed in a mask precisely to sort of deflect from the fact uh, that, 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 that she was uh, a female performer. And uh, so it is, it's very important to understand that this public sphere itself is gendered, not something that we normally um, you know, have a good understanding of. Yeah, and I also think this chapter is, <laughs> interestingly, 
probably the most difficult uh, stage to perform and to observe performance in because the rules are not written as clearly down uh, as they are in, for example, the uh, health delivery shop or in 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 all in most of the other chapters <clears throat> where <clears throat> the performer and the one uh, experiencing the performance have clear rules as we've already talked a lot about here it, in this case it's a lot less um defined and performers really just have to hope <laughs> that the ones coming to listen can accept that they will be there for a little bit maybe throw a coin or two and then leave um whereas in the health delivery shop for example um uh, the owner will take action and contact the police if there are some clients who don't um, do as they're supposed to. So in that way, I think it's very interesting to think of this space in a way as more uh, unstable, uh, even though it's a space we all go through all the time. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was, um, for this reason, a sort of very interesting and troubling chapter to conclude with. And I think we, we you know, as Gita, I think you specifically just uh, referenced there, we've kind of entered the unregulated labor market, right, where things are always going to be just a little bit sketchier uh, and people who are just a little bit more vulnerable are going to be taking more risks and they're going to get hurt more and they have to find ways to protect themselves. And so I thought this was, you know, it, as it's a fascinating contrast, as you point out, to this highly regulated um, and well understood, uh, negotiated uh, and often, you know, sort of prepaid and pre-understood um, kind of mark markets, several of them uh, that get talked about in the other chapters. Yeah. I wanted to say also, this is just, it reminded me a little bit of um, something that I've seen in online spaces uh, in the world of uh, streaming, where, uh, and this is anecdotal, and so it may not may not be the same thing, but I my impression is that there are a lot more men streaming with their faces visible. Um, and I think that it may point to some of those same dynamics in what is, again, sort of ostensibly a public space, even if it's not a physical public space, right? That fear of somehow being doxxed or inappropriately approached or something like that. I think, it, and, and I don't know that I would have really thought about that without having read this chapter. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so that was, it was very thought provoking. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure Rob will, <laughs> will be happy to hear that. Um, because if I remember correctly, I mean, probably you supervised him, but did he, was the aspect of gender, did that really come into play until he was contributing this chapter? Is I wish you could ask him. <laughs> <laughs> it, it came in uh, quite late, precisely because, you know, but it, it's that's always an issue with ethnographic research, right? You have to sort of go with the flow. So with the people you meet uh, and uh, that did they become your informants and then you sort of branch out from there. But you realize, of course, within the scene, there's lots of subgroups and subgroupings and people who perform on different days or in different, uh, in slightly different locations, you know, not in the underpass, but slightly closer to the station. And they may not necessarily be talking to each other uh either so it's uh, it's uh yes that, that it's sort of 
it's one of the things where you once you've established an understanding of what the common sense is of performance, you start realizing, oh, actually, there's many different understandings. Uh, and the, these understandings themselves are highly gendered. Well, um, I've put you in the difficult position of having to speak for all of these young scholars. Uh, and I really appreciate you being able to, to do that for us. Uh, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to get them on with their books uh, in some sometime in the near future. Uh, but I, again, I want to thank you for uh, making the time to talk to us about the book um, and uh, wish you luck with whatever the two of you are doing individually. Uh, and please do tell uh, all of the authors that we're we're looking forward to their books as well. But thank you. Thank so you very much for having yeah. us. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>